morning, Chillicothe Bible Church. Glad y'all are here this morning. A uh, couple of quick announcements here as we start off. First of all, the Teen Challenge Banquet is coming up, and uh, it'll be October the 9th. Uh, and the speaker they have is a, he's an old guy now, uh, but his name is Nicky Cruz. He was the warlord. Uh, in charge of the Mau Mau's street gang in uh, New York City and uh, became a Christian through the ministry of a pastor. Uh, eventually resulted in a book called The Cross and the Switchblade that some of you may have read. And if you're interested in being part of that banquet, I'm going to have to let them know this week uh, how many tickets that uh, I want. Tickets are $40. Uh, for that banquet and that uh, to get to hear uh, Nikki Cruz speak. Uh, I'm going to go. I'm going to take one of my boys with me. And if you'd like to go with us, uh, I think we've got about six more spots at the table uh, that we could fill. So uh, in any case, uh, let me know uh, here today or in the next couple of days because I'll have to let uh, those guys know how many we're, we're bringing with us. So uh, it'll be a great night. Also, uh, if you are a young person, by young person I mean 7th grade and up, um, and you would like to be part of the worship team here or be part of a youth worship band, now we are uh, trying to put that together. Uh, and if you're interested in singing or playing an instrument or learning from our worship team, uh, how to do some of these things, how to lead other people in worshiping God, uh, we're trying to put that together. So see me or see Tony Malik, and uh, we're going to try and get that together, get some practice in, and hopefully about once a quarter have our youth worship band uh, lead us uh, into the into God's presence together. So lots of opportunity for serving the Lord with that. Um, and uh, y'all are the church as well, and we want to integrate you into uh, all aspects of it. So be an exciting thing. Let's pray, and then let's uh, open God's Word together. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that today is a day on which we celebrate new life, uh, new life in Christ uh, as we baptize a couple of our young people. Uh, but also a day, Father, for us to open your word and to uh, see what you have to teach us in it, and a day to, to sing your praise, a day to declare your glory, uh, a day to be in awe of all that you have done. And Father, we, we ask that you would be uh, present with us by your Holy Spirit in a special way this morning, and that you would speak to our hearts uh, and conform us to the character of Christ. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were to happen to stop by my house on any random night that we happen to be home, which now with three kids in, in high school is not all that often. We're not home nearly as much as we used to be because we're going to band or to choir or to play practice or whatever. But if Karen and I both happen to be home on any given evening, more than likely, you're going to catch us watching some kind of renovation or restoration show, right? I like to watch Counting Cars, you know, where they're doing old car restoration. 
Uh, I like to watch these guys build custom choppers. Uh, I, like, uh, I like to watch Forged in Fire, right? Like History Channel, HGTV, DIY. These are, these are what we watch at our house, right? And, uh, you know, along with some, you know, crime dramas and whatever else. But, but on any given night, you'll probably find us watching somebody re- restoring or repairing something and making it new. One of the ones we binge-watched recently was one called Good Bones. I think it's on DIY. Uh, I'll lose track. But anyway, the, one of the reasons I like it is it's, uh, it's two women, mother and daughter, and they are restoring homes in the neighborhood that I lived in until I was about six years old. Uh, it's, 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 old it's old inner city Indianapolis. And these places that they buy, well, I'll give you an idea. They're buying houses that are boarded up on the outside for about $4,000. So that gives you an idea of the kind of places we're talking about. And they, when they pry the boards off one of these places, a lot of times they're going to have holes in the roof, so everything inside is going to be wet. And then they're going to find inside all kinds of mold and nastiness and animal and human waste and old clothes, and the remnants of the drug trade, and all of this stuff that's in this house. And then they gut the house. I mean, they gut it completely. They save as much as they can, but mostly you can see, when they get done with the demolition process, you can see through the house all the way, (laughs) because they've taken everything basically down to the studs taking out insulation, carpet, all kinds of stuff. And there's a lot of sledgehammers. Uh, you know, she's got her brother, the, the gal that is kind of the leader of the show, has her brother uh, and a bunch of his huge human friends uh, that are coming over with the demo crew, and they're, they're sledgehammers, and there's guys it's like swinging on a beam and pushing out windows <laughs> with their feet. And it's, it's, it's entertainment. It really is. As they're doing all this demo stuff, and then at the end of the show, of course, each episode is like a half hour, hour long. And, and they, uh, they have taken this dump and totally transformed it. They have found the beautiful house underneath all of the garbage, all of the waste, all of the mold, all of the termites, all of the nastiness that was there. And they have found the, quote, good bones underneath all that and turned this into this beautiful, this beautiful place. And the process of getting from point A to point B does not look very pretty. But the end result is beautiful. And that's something like what Jesus did at the beginning in his first year of public ministry when he took his disciples with him up to the temple to worship. What he found there in the temple, according to John, was a disgusting mess, corrupting the space that God had created the temple for. And in in a worship space, he all of a sudden found this disgusting, corrupt mess. And so when he sees it, Jesus rolls up his sleeves, and it's demo day in the temple. And... Uh, he starts the process of cleaning it all out. 
And so I want to show you this story uh, about Jesus, this true story. This really did happen. In fact, Jesus, most commentators feel, did this twice, once at the beginning of his public ministry and once at the end. Uh, John records the first one. The synoptics record the later one. Uh, in the last week of Jesus' life, Jesus did it a second time. But it's in, the story is in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. So if you've got your Bible, I'd like to show you this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Now let me give you a little background on what's happening here. Passover was one of the high celebrations of the Jewish calendar. It was a feast that celebrated both the beginning of the Jewish New Year and their establishment as a nation by God's miraculous deliverance of their people from slavery in Egypt. Now you remember, uh, if you remember the book of Exodus, uh, it's been a couple years since we looked at it together, but if you remember the book of Exodus, there were ten plagues that God sent on Egypt through Moses, and each one of those plagues attacks a particular God to show that God is really God and the gods of the Egyptians are not really God. Because Pharaoh says at the beginning when Moses confronts him, he says, I do not know the Lord and I will not turn your people loose because myself, Pharaoh regarded himself as a God, and my gods are stronger than he is because after all, we are the gods of the rulers. And the Lord, Yahweh, is the God of the slaves. So it's obvious who's really in charge. And so God said, very well, I'll send you plagues to convince you of who is really God in this scenario. And so then you go through all ten of these. The very last one, if you remember, it takes place on the Israelites' very last night as slaves in the land of Egypt. And what happens is this. God says, he gives everybody a warning. He says, there's coming a night, and he names the night, that I'm going to go through all the land of Egypt and I will kill the firstborn son of every person who does not slay a lamb at twilight and put the blood on the doorposts of their house. And some of the Egyptians... They'd been through enough of this that they went, hmm, I think that would be a good idea. I think I'm going to do that. I'm going to put myself down with the people of Israel and their God versus the gods of the Egyptians. In fact, some of the Egyptians will leave with the Israelites as part of the nation that goes out because they put their faith in Israel's God. But anybody who didn't, from Pharaoh in his palace all the way down to the lowest-ranking Egyptian, anyone who did not slay the lamb and put the blood on the door, 
the firstborn son in their house was struck dead. And there was a great wailing throughout Egypt, and the Egyptians literally threw them out. They said, get out of here. Pharaoh and everybody wanted the Israelites gone. And God delivered those people. And it gets its name Passover because the death angel passed over the houses of those who had blood on their doors. And so it's a celebration of the miracle by which God delivered his people out of slavery through the blood of the Lamb. At least that's what it was supposed to be. And the temple was supposed to be the place where not just Israelites, but also people from every nation could draw near to God and experience the same kind of deliverance from spiritual slavery and receive new life through faith in Israel's God. And there was even a designated area of the temple for those people, that just like the Egyptians that went out with Israel, that there could also be people from every other nation of the world that could see what God had done for Israel and come to worship Him, and that they could draw near to God's temple in Jerusalem and worship. And this area that was made up most of the temple, actually, was called the Court of the Nations, the Court of the Gentiles. And it's there that all of a sudden, when Jesus arrives, there are guys selling sheep, goats, oxen, pigeons. There's kind of a sliding scale of offerings. If you're very poor, you could offer two pigeons. If you were wealthier, you you could offer a, a, a steer. But the idea was that everybody would come and worship and offer something according to their ability before God. When Jesus gets there with his disciples, though, this area of the temple where the nations are supposed to come and be able to worship is not open for worship. It's open for business. And people are conducting also a brisk brisk trade in money changing. I don't know if you ever traveled to a foreign country and had to change money. But guess what? You always take a bath on the exchange rate. Always. Whatever the exchange rate is, there's always a guy making, making money on the margin. So maybe the official you know, exchange rate between banks is, you know, I, when, I went to, when I went to Mozambique, it was $1 to 30,000 Mozambican Medici. Okay? But you couldn't get that many from the money changers. You'd get 25 maybe. Or or you'd get 20. But you wouldn't get 30. Because, you know, we've got to make money somewhere. Right? And so they're taking from you more money than what you're giving them. It would be like giving somebody a 10 and they give you back 8 bucks. In response. And... Uh, and what people are do- what they're doing is they're charging people, in fact, from contemporary sources, we learn fairly exorbitant rates. Uh, so in other words, if you want to change a dollar, you got to give me the equivalent of uh, two hours worth of work in order to 
to change that into this. And that's going on. And then on top of that, there are people selling these animals. And, and of course, this got to be a racket as well because all the animals had to be inspected by the priests. And the priests, of course, could declare anybody's animal to be acceptable or not acceptable. So then you got to charge a premium rate for the ones that the priests had already deemed acceptable, right? And, of course, the priests got a kickback on that, too. In fact, the high priest, uh, Annas, uh, according to contemporary sources, was actually selling franchises for money-changing and, uh, and animal vending. And then on top of that, this was taking place not... It, it had this had been something that had taken place for a long time because it was a service that you needed... Uh, for people who are traveling a long distance, you might want to, rather than, let's say you were traveling, you know, a week, 10 days journey on foot, well, you don't want to take an animal with you to do that. So it would be a whole lot easier to just buy one when you got there. But instead of doing that across the Kidron Valley on the on the Mount of Olives, as they had done for a long time, they had moved it into the temple itself. And this was called the Bazaar of Annas. That he was just basically extorting people at both ends of the deal. You got to have our money, not the money you brought. And you got to have our animal not the animal you brought, or this is the, if you're going to just straight up buy one from us, well then we're going to have to have a, a premium price be paid for it. And Jesus sees all this, and he is having none of it. He comes into the temple, he sees what's going on, and he starts looking around for ropes. And he makes himself a whip and he drives out all of the livestock and all of the vendors. He comes to the pigeon sellers who probably have their wares in cages. And he, tell, he just orders them out. Get out. And they leave. I don't know what Jesus looked like exactly as he's going through the temple with a whip. But understand the guy worked with his hands probably 10, 12 hours a day, every day. Uh, this is not uh, the kind of that, I don't know, that bearded lady photo that people have in their houses sometimes. You know, where it's a very feminine-looking Jesus. And you go, uh, uh, he doesn't look like any, a guy who's capable of blowing a dandelion off. Never mind, um, dri you know, driving people out of the temple. But Jesus is swinging this thing to such a degree that when he tells the guy selling doves, get out, they up and leave. They don't need any further encouragement from the guy with the whip. <laughs> They're gone. And, and he's flipping over tables, and there's money going everywhere. There's change and coins just flying across the temple floor. Imagine this scene. Imagine this. Jesus is energetically driving these people out. And some people, he is enraged by the corruption 
of, and the perversion of places that are meant for worship being used for the purpose of oppressing the worshipers. He's enraged by it. Now, some people are not very comfortable with this aspect of Jesus' character. They look at this and they go, I don't know about this. This doesn't seem very Jesus-like to me. I mean, can't we have gentle Jesus, meek and mild? I mean, isn't, isn't that part of who he is? Yeah. Jesus was popular with kids. People who were sinners and people who were wounded and oppressed and sick and in, in struggle and difficulty were drawn to him. Jesus was a very appealing person to be around. But at the same time, he has had, had absolutely zero tolerance for the corruption of the worship of God. Because remember what John told us in chapter 1? Jesus was full of grace and what? Truth. Grace and truth. So he is full of grace and kindness and gentleness and love, but also full of God's holy wrath against evil and it's on display right here in this text and when they watch this happen the disciples remember god's word from psalm 69 verse 9 zeal for your house will consume me jesus was burning with passion for the true worship of the living god and he wanted it to happen not just for Jews, but also for the nations. And the space where they could do it was corrupted. And as you can imagine, the people who see this, the people, especially the people who are profiting from it, are a little upset by Jesus upsetting the status quo. Look, Jesus, we got a good thing going here. We got kind of a nice little racket we got rolling. And where do you get off with what you're doing right here? So they confront him. Uh, and this is, uh, this is what you see beginning verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in Man. You know what's really strange about what these Jewish leaders, whenever you see the Jews in John, you need to read in that the Jewish leadership. That's what John means by the Jews. Uh, they're asking for a sign to prove that he has the authority to do what he has just done. But what they have missed is that Jesus' actions are themselves the sign of who he is. 
See, Malachi uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, the prophet predicts there's going to be a forerunner who is going to come, who is going to announce the coming of the Lord to the temple. Where's the first place Jesus goes after he leaves Galilee? To the temple. And it says in Malachi that he is going to appear suddenly at the temple to bring cleansing and to restore acceptable worship to the place and to clean out the corruption of the priests and the sacrificial system. What did Jesus do? He shows up at the temple, cleans out the corruption of the priests and the sacrificial system, and they go, who are you and what are you doing? They're completely blind to what he has just done and why they don't get it they have they've known all about john's ministry john uh as i put the the chronology together john's been doing his ministry baptizing people preparing for the coming of messiah for at least a year by the time that jesus shows up here john announced jesus as the messiah while there were people from these Jewish leaders there to investigate. A little while later, Jesus shows up at the temple, takes this action, and they're confused. Who are you again? Why are you doing this? And they say, well, well, give us a sign that you have authority to do these things. And he says, well, I'll tell you what. You don't like this sign? I'll give you another one. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And they think because they're so consumed with place where they are that he's talking about the building that they're standing next to. He's not talking about the building. He's talking about himself and his body. Because what's a temple? It's the place where God dwells. So who's the temple? Jesus is the temple. Because in him all the fullness of God dwells bodily, as Paul says in Colossians, right? That Jesus is the temple. He says, when you destroy this temple, meaning my body, when I die, three days later, I will raise it up. Is that a good sign? That you know who, that, that will reveal who you are? I mean, let me just tell you this, okay? I love to watch magic, you know, these illusionists and all this kind of thing. Uh, I, I really enjoy those, right? I enjoy the escape acts especially, where guy's like locked in a bag and then a box, and then, you know, pretty, and his assistant puts him in there, you know, and they, they raise the curtain up, and like seemingly three seconds later, the assistant is locked up in the box, in the bag, and, you know, there stands the magician, right? And you're like, how do they do that? And it's amazing. But it's all a trick. And if you could see behind the stage, you could see what they're doing back there. But Jesus gives them a sign that is obviously not a trick. Because let me tell you this. 100% of the time, if somebody gets put to death, guess what happens? They stay dead. They stay dead. If you are dead for three minutes, sometimes they can bring you back. If they get your body really, really cold, sometimes they can bring you back within a few minutes. But guess what? If you are out for three days, 
I don't care how high they charge up the paddles, you ain't coming back. Dr. Frankenstein is not going to resuscitate you. Lightning storm or no. Okay, it's not going to happen. But Jesus says, put me to death, and if you can bury me for three days, and I will be out of the grave within three days. How about that? Is that a sign of who Jesus is? Yes. Because guess who can do that? God can do that. Guess who else? No one else can do that. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. There is nowhere that God ever dwelt more fully than in Jesus. In Him, God is fully present as a human being, fully human, fully God. And when His temple is destroyed, it is raised again in three days. That's the sign. That He has the authority to cleanse out corruption of the physical temple they see. And when He is resurrected, it will prove that He is Messiah and God. Now, some people did see, the Scripture tells us here, verses 23 to 25, they did see what Jesus did, and they believed. They trusted in Him, but He did not entrust Himself to them, the Scripture says, because He could see what was in their hearts. By the way, that's another sign. You know, some of us get pretty good at reading people, but Jesus could actually see what was in each person's heart and whether their faith was genuine or not. And we'll meet one of the people who believed next week. His name is Nicodemus. And we'll meet him next week and find out about how he came to follow Jesus. But between now and then, let's consider some of what God is teaching us here in this passage in His Word. Two things I want to point out to you. Just underline for us that God is very patient, but He eventually judges sin. Eventually, He does judge sin. And I find this passage about Jesus enormously comforting, by the way. Now, you may be looking at me and scratching your head when I use that word. Jesus takes a whip to a bunch of people, and you find that comforting? What kind of weirdo are you, right? But let me explain that for just a second. I don't know if you've noticed, but the world that we live in is deeply corrupt. Deeply, deeply corrupt. From top to bottom, amen? And my heart and your heart is corrupt too, but the society that we live in the world that we live in from top to bottom is corrupt. And this passage tells us that Jesus will not allow that to go on forever. And I find that incredibly comforting. That there's going to be a day when Jesus will say, everybody out of the pool, this is it. And this is a foretaste of that reality. That Jesus will not allow the corruption that we see to go on forever. So take comfort in that. 
sin and wickedness are not going to have the final say. The Word of God is going to speak one day and bring an end to all of that. But second thing I want to point out to you is this, that Jesus is zealously concerned for the purity of our worship. The purity of our worship matters to Jesus. It is very easy to turn worship into something it was not intended to be. Amen? It was, it's easy for our sinful hearts to corrupt even the worship of God and to turn it into something that is mostly about benefiting me rather than overwhelming me with the greatness and glory of God. That's what worship is supposed to is to point me to not how, not how great I am that God has saved me, but how great God is because He has saved me. Now, I heard a, a story recently from Pastor Francis Chan. I thought this was really good. He said this. Somebody came up to him after a service and they said, they said, Pastor, I didn't get anything out of worship today. You know what his response was? I thought this was very pointed. He said, well, that's okay, because you weren't the one we were worshiping. True that. Amen? <laughs> okay. That's okay. You weren't the one we were worshiping. In other words, what you wanted and what you got out of it is not the point. The point is, is that we are there to worship God. We are there to bring honor to Him. And yes, God intends for us to grow and to change and to experience joy in that process. But even if we don't, the point is to worship God and to declare His glory and to, do, and to express our gratitude to Him and to, and to be in awe of who He is and what He has done for us. Not that we would go out of there saying, well, gosh, I'm really glad that that benefited me so much. The goal is not that we be entertained and gratified by worship. The goal is that God be glorified by what we do in worship. And when we make what is convenient or what we find congenial, the, gu the guiding principle for worship, then we are corrupting it just as surely as these guys selling doves and changing money did. Does that mean miserable Christians have the best worship? No. <laughs> okay, it's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying come to worship and be miserable as you glorify God. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. Don't misunderstand. But it does mean that whether what we do is pleasing to God ought to matter more than whether it is pleasing to us. Amen? Because, you know, and Francis also said this. He said, you know, when I got started early in ministry, and I, I thought this was such a good point. So when I got started early in ministry, he goes, I planted a church, and this was my thought. What kind of church would I like to attend? And and he said, and I made that my guiding principle for everything that I did, was what kind of church would, would somebody like me like to attend? And he goes, and we built the whole thing 
uh, around that, and it became this huge thing. He says, and I realized later that was the wrong question. The question I should have asked at the beginning was, what kind of church would please God? And built that instead. And men and women, Jesus is zealously concerned for the purity of our worship too. And we ought to ask as we come and worship of the one true God who has lavished His grace on us in the person of Jesus, who has given us the Holy Spirit to change our hearts. As I come to worship, am I here for myself or to give glory to God? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And those of you who are going to be baptized, take a minute, go change right now. Okay? Nikki, if you'd grab the children's church kids, that'd be great. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are gracious and kind and loving and gentle, but You are also truthful and wrathful against evil, and You put an end to it. Father, we thank You for Your holiness and Your love. You are not one or the other. You are both at the same time. And it is great, and it is glorious, and it is beyond us. Father, we thank You that we do have the encouragement from Your Word that You will not put up long with evil, but there is a day coming when it will come to an end. And Father, we also thank You that You are concerned about our hearts too. Father, may You do whatever is necessary to cleanse the corruption from our hearts that we might worship You in a pure way and give You glory. Glory like You deserve, Father. Let us give You praise from a pure heart with clean hands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.